welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. In this week's episode, my co-host Sean Ang and I speak to vocalist Angela Yam about finding her medium in college, the current state of opera and its exciting future, and a very endearing story about her mom talking to a stranger on the bus. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Angela. Thank you. Excited to have you and excited to have you on our first uh, two-host episode. Woo! Yeah, this is exciting. We're going to interview all my friends. (laughs) (laughs) So... If we could just start with a little bit of your background, like how did you, um, how did you get into opera? How did you get into music? So I grew up uh, in California as the daughter of two immigrants from Hong Kong. Um, And I was born and raised in California. And part of growing up in my family's household was to learn the piano. So when I was five years old, I took lessons for a couple weeks and I hated it, so I quit. <laughs> and then when I was six years old, I tried again, and that time it stuck. Um, but I played piano all the way through uh, through high school, and I actually um, enrolled in college as a piano major. Um, and along the way, the school system that I grew up in, you had the opportunity to learn other instruments, so I also picked up um, violin starting in fourth grade and all the way through high school. Um, and In my junior year of high school, there was a need for alto singers in the choir. And so I shimmed on over over there. Um, I'm not an alto anymore, but at the time I was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I went to college with the expectation of, of parents who had been in STEM of like, oh, you can declare as a music major, but you'll definitely pick up something else on the way, right? You'll do <laughs> economics or pre-med or something. And I, I tried those classes and I really detested it. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Sean was there supporting me on that way. Um, and I started taking voice lessons because I had sung in choir for fun and I had, you know, I had been able to read music and I was a good enough musician that uh, picking things up by by ear or sight reading uh, were skills that I picked up very easily. And as I was sort of juggling these three instruments of piano, violin, and voice, um, and also going through the tumultuous time of a freshman year at a university, which you never know, like, what's happening, it really made me focus on what I loved doing. And I was finding that the majority of my practice time was spent singing something that I had never considered as a as a career before and so I decided to major in in singing and I switched my my degree to singing our university though did not have uh, an opera program um, they had two voice teachers and they had some uh, ensemble singing so I was singing in choirs and things and chamber music um, but I didn't get my real taste of opera until I went to a summer program in Italy, where we did operatic scenes. And it was like my first time in Italy, my first time singing this repertoire, my first time ever being on stage. There was so much vocabulary that like other singers knew that I didn't. I didn't know what stage directions were. I didn't know how to memorize this kind of music. Um, I was really thrown into the basket, just left to fend for myself. (laughs) And I 
loved that process. I loved doing every moment of it. Um, and in an, an industry like opera, where so much of your time is spent coaching and rehearsing, uh, if you fall in love with that process, it's well worth any performance that you might have. I mean, it sounds like just the process of enrolling in college, like really pointed you in a direction. Is that is that fair? Like you kind of had to stumble into into the direction that you ended up taking? Yeah. Yeah. I would say like very few 17-year-olds know what they're getting into when they go into university. Right. Um, you might have an idea. I like this kind of thing. I think I'll take classes in this thing. And people talk about like your advisors of like, oh, you'll change your major. You'll get more specific as you go along. And that was actually exactly the case for me, not in the way that my parents uh, originally planned, but (laughs) in a way that was very true to discovering my adult life and my adulthood and what I wanted to be doing with my life. So yeah, being put on a particular track of like, well, I'm, I'm good at this. I think I like this, this thing being music for me. Uh, it put me in an environment where I was able to find what I actually loved about it. Um, as opposed to just, I'm good at it. Therefore I should do it. Right. And I, I feel like it, it's interesting to hear that laid out because I guess I sort of always assumed that most of us who end up pursuing some sort of art career have that experience. I certainly did. I I enrolled at Sac State for graphic design and during orientation realized almost immediately that I was in the wrong place. And um but look at you now you're doing graphic design for fun. Oh, I know. <laughs> but um but it's always interesting because I just sort of figured that that's kind of how everybody ended up doing it like you you go to college and you have for the liberal arts, you go to college and you have a some sort of idea about what exactly you want to do. But um, it's when you get to college and you get to do those sorts of things that you really uh, discover it. And of course, uh, going through school, I find that that is definitely not always the case. Some people are much more dialed in and some people take a lot longer. Yeah. And that's the sort of amazing thing about um, higher academia of going to college, of going to an environment where you can have the place to explore not only yourself but also your interests and I feel like that journey is incredibly personal to each person people talk about in the opera industry there's no one way of doing it there's no you start at this company and you work your way up and that's how you get successful or whatever but everyone has such an individual path that I think this idea of like in our society of like, you go to college, you get a degree, you get a job in that degree, and you're successful for the rest of your life, you work your way up or whatever. Um, And I think something that's kind of incredibly fun, but also incredibly risky of of being an artist is um, there's no guarantee of that set path. Or of any path. Exactly. But especially with opera and voice, right? Your instrument is you. And you and like, from what I've taken what little classes I've taken, it's this, it's a development that you can't rush. And it's a part of a process of developing a skill set and nurturing your, the mechanics and the artistry of your own physical body. So that like, you won't find out what your niche is or what your role is in this world until, until you kind of arrive there. And from my experiences with like school, especially for voice, it's just helping you set, 
benchmarks for where you kind of like this is kind of this gray area of you should be as good as this ish so then we can help support you to move to the next barrier uh, up and up and up up yeah and that's the another crazy thing about this industry is so many people don't become really successful until their 30s or 40s or 50s um lots of people start really late and have very successful careers um so it's a really fascinating industry because there's no uh guarantee of like early you know prodigal success guaranteeing like longevity eight-year-old violinist superstars oh yeah which i think yeah it's a little different from other instruments it's fascinating do you think that that sort of longevity is because um it takes so long to figure out what you want to do or find your place or is it because a lot of people end up on this sort of path of not really knowing the direction they want to take until they sort of stumble upon it part of it's like you're like literally your voice physically maturing right and that doesn't happen until later you can't this you know when you see america's got talent and you see those 12 year olds faking their way through opera that's that's no that's not that's not what opera is and like you just you just have to be old enough and your your musculature that we still that no one exactly knows exactly what's going on but right like that doesn't happen until a certain point in your development i think another interesting aspect of of this art form is um, the sense of validity, like what makes you a valid artist. And for some people, it's like, I have been hired to do these things, which I think are correct for me. And therefore I am valid as a, as a musician, which is great, like early encouragement for a lot of young um, musicians of, I have a skill set that is wanted and that people will pay for. And I think what's so tricky about being a voice that, develops later in life or that you're a product that you're still working on is you don't have that traditional sense of of validity um i've made it yeah of of, i've made it and even if you have like a world-class voice having those connections are often what gets you gigs being in the right place at the right time singing for the right person it's so it's such a, a finicky process so that's part of the challenge of of feeling as a as a valid artist Sure, I'd say that's true across pretty much all disciplines. Yeah, and and maybe one of the most difficult things about it is is finding those sorts of connections or making them or coming to terms with the fact that there are things that you're not going to be able to do unless you have those connections or until you do. And also just it's kind of contradicting to the sort of experience that we're taught that we're supposed to have i think in the united states where you know life ends at 25 so you you gotta have a direction and you need to know where you're going and then we end up in our late 20s early 30s and our careers are just starting and there's a reason why so many things are built around mid-career artists in their 40s and 50s i guess um and in our um outline here sean's provided a little bit of of his knowledge of like your your school background so Maybe talk a little bit about that journey for you personally and where you see yourself and where you see yourself going that way. Yeah, I think one of the things that you realize as you start a path in in classical singing is uh, how much you have to reinvent a career, if that makes sense. Like you said, there's like, there's no path for a particular person. There's no, I work at this company and then I've made it. 
Um, and you see plenty of, of examples as you research artists that inspire you of them reinventing what they do, restarting, uh, learning something new, doing this recording project, doing this operatic project. And it's actually really inspiring to hear artists who are like, I didn't make it until my 30s. I didn't make it, you know, make it was legitimized by this industry until my late 30s, my late 20s, things like that. And that's actually something that I think is really empowering for a lot of people who are struggling with this traditional mold of like my life must be made by the time I'm 25. My life must be figured out by the time I'm 30. Um, for me, I found a lot of personal comfort in knowing that I'm still developing. I'm still a work in progress. I think that that's a healthy mentality to take as an artist or as a person into the rest of your life. I'm still working on me. I'm still working on what I bring to this world and to this industry. And I had a lot of self uh, conscious like issues starting opera in my eyes so late. I was 21 when I first sang any opera and all the prodigies that you hear like 18 year old wins this competition, 21 year old wins this competition. And I was like, I don't know how to sing. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I don't have all this knowledge that someone who like grew up in it or was really good at it at a young age has. And I think part of that self-consciousness is part of why I'm so driven now of like that, that sense of like anxiety of like, I need to catch up. Obviously like um, everyone finds success at different times. Um, and that is, it can be a good thing or a bad thing, that, that sense of anxiety. But I think ultimately what keeps me grounded is knowing that people who are my age, which is 24, um, I'm like at the right spot. I'm still figuring it out. I'm enrolled in a school. I have only, haven't had very many professional contracts yet. And that's normal for a singer. Because, right, those, especially for opera, those Wunderkinds who make it at 21 are the exception rather than the rule. They're massively the exception. There are so many jobs that need filling and not everyone is going to be free every single day of the year. And that's where you come in. <laughs> be the understudy. Exactly. <laughs> so why opera? Of all, of all the genres of classical singing, I mean, it's the biggest one. But, you know, why opera? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a combination of aspects for me. So there was, you know, I was already uh, a classically trained musician, albeit in another instrument, but there's a lot of background knowledge that I already had. Um, but what I discovered in the process of doing that, those first operatic scenes was I love telling stories. I love telling stories with my voice and with people seeing me portray the story and I love the stories that I'm telling and I never really had an outlet for that as a kid um, I was very shy um, I was a pianist so like I never looked at the audience you know <laughs> um, and yeah I really discovered a love of storytelling using an instrument particularly my voice I think had I been a better pianist or a better violinist, I would have found that eventually and like embraced that within those mediums. But for me, the voice was such a compelling way of telling a story that it was like when I was 18 taking my first voice lessons, it was like an immediate like, oh, I'm, I'm making art 
I'm not learning notes. I'm not learning how to play this instrument. I'm already making it, making the art. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a very special and, and encouraging experience to have, you know, as someone who's budding into her adulthood um, and trying to figure out like what kind of impact I want to have on the world. Um, so I chose opera because of its storytelling capabilities and because um, I thought my voice had a, a place in that. What a really incredible time to discover that, right? When you are, like you're saying, sort of carving out your own space um, in the world and and figuring out who you particularly want to be. I think that that suddenly falling into the this thing that would go on to be, I assume, a large part of your identity would just be hugely impactful. Yeah, it's I I blame, <laughs> not blame, but I uh, assign my a huge part of my self image to the things I was able to explore through being a singer through being particularly an operatic singer uh as I was saying before I like I was a really shy person um Sean may or may not remember I remember (laughs) freshman year me Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think what was also obvious though looking back was like I had a personality that I wanted to share with the world and I didn't have the confidence or the medium to do that yet. Um, so a big part of me being a singer was finding something that I could develop my confidence in and could develop my sense of agency in. And yeah, it's really, it's really been a wonderful experience for me. Um, it's something that I hope everyone can find in their life in some aspect. And I have to say, as someone who has watched Angela perform before, especially when you get to see her like perform opera, it is she is really an actress on that stage, and in the way she kind of inhibits herself in the moment, and it's just it's some it's like you don't see it very often, even at this developmental level. Someone who can like own themselves and own kind of what they're supposed to be being in that moment that's very kind of you Sean. <laughs> that's so just sweet. the truth we need the listeners to know the truth <laughs> um and that and like you kind of touched on it well I think I think there's something um I think every singer will find what they bring to this medium in whatever capacity so that could be I have a really gorgeous voice which people love to hear or I have um amazing uh, skills with the voice that other people don't have. But for me, knowing that the root of my wanting to be in this industry was to tell stories. That's my focus when I step on the stage. All the vocal development, technical, stylistic things are contributing to me being able to tell you a story. And so that I've always held very, very close. So having heard sort of where you're at and kind of beginning your career and and beginning to sort of point yourself in in a direction um, professionally and artistically. I'd be curious because I almost feel like we have to ask this question from everyone that we talk to right now, but um, I, I would imagine that the current state of the world, the pandemic and, and all of that is really reshaping um, the industry, the, the industry. Right. And it, it's certainly reshaping mine. Um, and I would be curious to hear your experience, if you have any sort of sort of thoughts on on what it's like to 
be at the point that you're at professionally, artistically, and, and trying to um, sort of navigate that this very new, unique sort of space? Yeah, yeah. You phrase it really well of like, it is a new and unique space to exist in. I think each of us in our own respective career paths, doesn't matter if you're an artist or, or um, a different job, is finding ways that this pandemic is impacting um, their industry. And there's obviously a lot of concern from operatic singers as our art is a live art form that uses our voice, that uses air, that uses you know, our ability to project um, for better or for worse in this time. <laughs> um, and there have been a lot of really innovative things that people in our industry have come up with. The idea of virtual operas or recording things and having animation over it or uh, socially distanced operas. What does that look like? There's a lot of examples in Europe because they're doing a little better than us. Um, and I think it's sort of representative of what I spoke about before of like, there are plenty of artists in this industry who have quote unquote made it, who are constantly reinventing themselves, reinventing what they can bring. So who are some of your favorites? What are some of my favorites? Well, I am in love with the idea of being able to tell stories physically, physically in person without physically touching. I think that there are a lot of really interesting ways of uh that i like in in dance or modern movement or things like that that you can tell stories without having to be in the same space um and i've been really inspired by having the time now actually to to look outside of my genre to see how do people tell stories that aren't i hold your hand and look longingly into your eyes <laughs> um and there have been some really innovative projects that people have done. Uh, some of my classmates at NEC made, uh, with their company, an animated opera. They did Hansel and Gretel in Animal Crossing. That's Duedone Productions, if you're curious. Um, and their season coming up this year uh, is entirely animated or entirely done through uh, visual storytelling in, in, in games. Um, yeah, and I think that's really remarkable people are having the time and the ability to explore ways of telling stories that haven't been traditionally done, which is, yeah, it's really remarkable. And I would imagine that in some ways it would almost benefit somebody to be early on in their career right now, especially in a, in a genre like opera, which as you said, requires all of the sorts of things that we can't do in a in a pandemic, right? Of, of having people in a room together and, and traditionally being this, this live medium. So I would imagine that it would be much easier if you are just getting started to be flexible around those things. I think it's encouraging. Yeah. The, the flexibility of artistry is, um, can only make one better. I feel, you know, what does it look like if I'm inhibited by X, Y, Z, how can I still use this to tell a compelling narrative? And so many of the skills that you can develop outside of, of opera, of acting skills, rhetoric, things like that. I have <laughs> a weekly like Zoom play reading group uh, and we just read Shakespeare plays. And like, we're all opera singers. None of us are like trained Shakespearean actors, but there's a lot that you can glean out of other 
genres of, of telling stories that I think translate really well into whatever the future of this industry will be. So yeah, it's really developed a sense of flexibility. What's your favorite Shakespeare role? I really liked um, Rosalind from As You Like It. Um, I got to read her. I think not having those traditional like, you look like X, you act like X, therefore you must play this kind of character, which is so common in opera and in, in acting even of like, you're a young, energetic girl, therefore we will only cast you as young, energetic girls, which like the character of Rosalind is. I also had an insanely fun time playing Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, (laughs) which like you wouldn't think like, you know, young Asian American woman playing Romeo's best friend. And in reality, it was like so much fun to make so many nuanced penis jokes Sorry, I don't know if that's inappropriate. Oh no, uh, that's perfectly fine. But yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot. There's a lot that we were able to explore um, that you you wouldn't traditionally get to. I feel. Well, thanks for segueing into one of our topics next. Um, so you're kind of you're right, quote unquote, <laughs> yeah, mm, professional. You're kind of <laughs> quote unquote young in this industry, but have you have you dealt with that kind of typecasting? Right, because. In opera, it's not only just how you look and who what who what you are. It's also your voice type, and that kind of quote unquote pigeonholes you into like what you're marketable for. So, have you kind of yeah navigated that yet? Yeah, I have in a lot of ways. Um, my particular voice type is uh, some sort of high soprano. There are different assignations that people like to use. Um, you know, there are so many ways of, of branding and, and categorizing what we just sound like. So I have felt a pressure to sing younger roles and high, flighty, flittery sopranos, uh, which I think is can be appropriate for someone with this voice type. I feel like personally, there's some roles that I just don't feel like they fit well in my in my voice or in my body. Um but there is a struggle I know with a lot of other voice types of like, say you're a young baritone, a lot of the roles are bass baritone. A lot of the roles out there for you are for like playing old men. And that can be really tricky to navigate of like, well, do I just have to wait until I'm 40 years old to play these people? Or is there an interesting way of staging it now where I can bring my own individual artistry to a rhetoric that everyone knows? Which is interesting and you mentioning like the Shakespeare group and that sort of thing, when you don't have everybody in the same room, I would imagine pretty much any sort of voice art, it becomes a lot easier to maybe sidestep those um, stereotypes, or at least you can in ways that would be more arguably more difficult on stage. Are you sort of finding that to be true at all? Yeah. um, With that particular group, part of, being in that space is that we all trust each other to like deliver this free product that we're giving to each other. We're not asking anyone to pay in or anything. Um, And we're just there to have fun and to explore. And I think that's a valuable aspect to have in this art form or in any art form is the ability to explore. Um, And people do talk about though, the believability, quote unquote, believability of opera or seeing things on on the stage to which I'm sort of like 
it's already unrealistic that we're standing here on a stage singing out of our mouths a story to you. <laughs> and so my question is like, where, where do you draw, where are you drawing that non-existent line, you know, of, of believability? People pick and choose. Exactly. Because opera is like a heightened state of being an emotion, right? Right. Which is something that has been really tricky to navigate as um, an Asian American woman who doesn't look like the characters that these roles were originally conceived for. I talked about my voice type before, this high, somewhat coloratura soprano. Many of the roles that were written uh, are meant to be young, chirpy, European women. There's characters that are named after the color of their hair, Blentian. She's literally little blonde. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've had an experience where I was looking at her aria, this Blentian's aria, um, and I was asking this person that I trusted, do you think that, like, this is a good aria for me? And I would have understood, like, oh, no, it's too high or it's too uh, light for you or you can, mm-hmm. any variety of other reasons. But instead, what she said was, oh, I don't think you'd ever play a blonde. <laughs> Which immediately nixes, like, half of the roles that I'm eligible for at the moment. Have you seen an Asian girl in college? Thank you very much. They can do blonde. <laughs> I know. I was like... Literally everyone I follow on Twitter is an Asian girl with blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> but also just like, what an insane statement too. Yeah. And a lot, I, I feel like a lot of times in the arts, people who practice art hold an unusual sort of um, love of, of characters and, and often have these very specific ideas about who characters are supposed to look like. And that is an insane thing for fictional characters you know because they're fiction right and right you would think that they would be uh infinitely malleable so it's interesting that a character could be a, a bad fit for you because they're they're blonde or yeah what an arbitrary reason <laughs> right yeah. especially when so much of the medium the thing that you practice is based in western art right Especially when you think of like a common opera practice to take, because everything is ancient and old and crusty, is they'll like recontextualize an opera. Like they'll take a Mozart opera and you'll be in the 1930s as like singing it in front of an old fashioned mic. Um, So it's like, if you can do that, we can move beyond the need of someone having to be a blonde to play a blonde. That's what wigs are for. But (laughs) at the end of the day, something that I always like to keep in mind when receiving comments like this or seeing industry practices like this is this industry is made up of people. People have particular biases, just as you were saying, Mason, of I think that it should be this way. And I see this interesting, really interesting and fascinating wrestling in this uh, industry of like, we want to, we want to connect with with new people, with young people, with people from marginalized backgrounds, with lower socioeconomic class people. Um, And there's that want, that desire to connect. Uh, But we still have these like really dated, ingrained thought processes. Like that person who, who gave that comment about you would never play a blonde did so thinking she was giving me career advice. Like she did so out of the the goodness of her heart. Um, I think there are so many instances of, of that kind of, you know, harmless microaggression of um, 
I think that this is like good advice to you when in reality, I'm just blocking off uh, a huge part of your identity in ushering you to go forward into this Western classical music genre. Hey everyone, welcome to the break. Thank you so much for listening. This is a project I've been working on for a long time and I'm really excited to share it with you all. So uh, thanks for stopping by and checking it out and sticking with it. If you or someone you know is an artist or an art worker and have a topic you'd like to bring to the show, you can email us at meaningwhatpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is meaningwhatpod. That is M-E-A-N-I-N-G-W-H-A-T-P-O-D. And finally, please take a moment, if you can, to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, tweet about the show, or otherwise spread the word however you can. Every little bit of help we can get from you breaking through the sea of evil algorithms that control everything will be incredibly important. All right, I'll let you get back to the show. Thank you again so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Do you think part of like the stuckness in the old has to do with how much opera as an industry relies on donors, and donors tend to be of an older age? And, you know, in a specific status and a specific kind of person, do you think that plays at all into it? Well, I think that at the end of the day, any company or director will want to keep in mind who their targeted audience is. Um, And it's difficult, say, if you're a company that has traditionally been supported by the individual donations of a particular group of people it's difficult to say let's think beyond what you think is is okay um because it's all related to funding you know if we had infinite resources to do whatever we wanted so many more interesting stories would be told and it's difficult when you're sort of well we can do three operas this season and one of them can be a little bit risky uh but the other two must be you know the traditional ones la traviata exactly <laughs> Madame Butterfly. This is not targeting any particular, but I've just seen <laughs> countless examples of we have our one risky one, and then we 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 got to do the favorites. You know, uh, we can have one modern production, and then the rest must be traditional. They still have to sell tickets, and and they still have to reach out. Exactly. Yeah, it's a money game. Right, and I would imagine too that a large part of the audience is those same older folk who would be funding it you know um and and this we touched on this i think a little bit but um with all of that in mind like what what sort of role does opera play sort of in contemporary culture and and moving forward because it is you know it's this thing that is believed to be for old white people i think by a lot of yeah Mm -hmm. a lot of folks on the outside but it's practiced by a much more diverse group of people than i think yeah. We would picture. Um, and so especially as things shift and as our ideas shift around entertainment, um, because they have to, because we have to consume so much more of it. Um, I'm I'm curious what you think where where you think opera sort of fits into culture moving forward. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that as you said, it's representative that opera can be for anyone when you look at the diversity of the people who are participating in it. Um, I think a larger issue is, is, are those people being heard? What's so amazing about this time in our 
uh, sociopolitical landscape is we are having conversations about people's authentic selves, bringing themselves and their identities to the lives and the people around them. Um, I think that there's an ever increasing movement in this industry to listen to uh, previously marginalized voices. And I think at the end of the day, as you said, like people have stories that they want to, to see and to tell. And opera to me is another one of those ways to tell a story. The only difference being, the only difference from a film or a musical or things like that is just, we use different instruments. And that's another thing, like people talk about how can we get people sitting in seats at an opera? How can we get them into our industry? Um, and I'm just speaking as, as an artist, not someone who's like had to run an, a company. But when you think about the competition for a Friday evening, you could go to the movies. You could uh, go to your niece's recital in her middle school orchestra or something. Or you could do like a variety of things. And what makes this product worth your evening, worth your time, not just your money, worth your time. What is compelling there? And I think where, I think there are plenty of examples of operas where it's a mind blowing and amazing experience, just as much as it would be to see something in the theaters or uh, a concert or things like that. Like when you think about what is the modern audience's competition, I think your own standards for, oh man, what do I have to bring to tonight's performance is so much more elevated. And I think that's a really valuable thing to uh, keep in mind um, for myself as I go forward into this industry of like, every time that I step out onto the stage, I'm not just selling myself, Angela Yam Soprano. I'm not just selling this opera, whatever it is. I'm not just selling this company. I'm also selling the validity of my art form, which is a lot of pressure. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating challenge to be presented. And I would argue that almost any artist in, in any medium is, has to do that when they present, right? There's always some level of having to convince your audience, not just that they're not wasting their time there, but that there is some reason why they should be listening to you or looking at you or watching you or, or however they're consuming it. So it's interesting to sort of hear you outline it because I don't think that that is a really conscious thing that a lot of people in other mediums go into it thinking about, right? There's some <laughs> acceptance about people are going to go to the movies like it's a valid thing or I am. Yeah, yeah. You know, casual date night. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, or to a concert of, of, popular music or um, even to an art gallery, but they, every single sort of artistic endeavor comes with that. So it's, it's interesting to, to hear it being kind of a conscious part of your practice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can feel it as like a, a sense of responsibility, which I don't think like, I think that is part of me reaching for professional prospects because there are a lot of uh, programs that someone my age of my caliber would be entering where I would be in charge, or not in charge, but uh, involved in their outreach program or their children's opera or things that are meant to be like reaching out into the community. Um, and I think the programming for those kinds of outreach operas are actually really interesting because 
they're meant to be like, oh, children can relate to this, or the regular man can relate to this, or things like that. And it's fascinating because we, in this industry, consciously or subconsciously know that like we're meant to be reaching out to a particular uh, kind of consciousness in other individuals, but we don't apply that to our to the rest of the operas we program uh, outside of just the outreach ones. Um, part of me wanting to stay in this industry, wanting to stay in this game is to sort of disrupt that image of this is what opera is, uh, or this is what an opera singer looks like, or this is what an opera singer um, sounds like, or talks like even. Um, it's been really fun, actually, because my mom is probably my biggest fan. That's a lie. She is my biggest fan. Oh, yeah, <laughs> she, she is. She oh talks about, she loves like to introduce like me the concept of me to just random strangers like she made a friend on a bus once because she was like oh my daughter sings opera let me show you a video <laughs> and I love that 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 can have that kind of reaction of like like I feel so greatly about this thing that I saw this person that I saw this opera that I saw that I want to share that with you um and I think that's a really fantastic way of getting people involved of like what viscerally do your audiences feel is worth sharing about the product you're presenting mm, and part of me wonders right like that question you posited of why do we go to opera why is it worth your time and part of the barriers are to that are the general concept of accessibility right and i like for example like language is just kind of just the most obvious one and you know we're still having debates about whether oscar movies should be in english or not if they're worthy of winning yada 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 and right and like how much does that pull you out of immersion and then also the tendency to be telling really old stories about old european people falling in love for three hours well i think there's something really remarkable about that of um the necessity the necessity to educate your audience of like you can be prepared to see this. Like when Parasite won at the Oscars, like it had plenty of haters for some reason of like, I don't, I can't do subtitles, you know? <laughs> but everyone else was like, of course you can. It's a movie. Like, that's fine. It's a great film. I still haven't seen it. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't either. It's on my list. And like, oh, both you know, of you get out of here. I'm, that's, <laughs> that's something that I think, uh, was part of like the the education of people going to see this film of like, we know it's in Korean and we don't care because we hear it's great. And I think that that can definitely be applied to foreign language operas of like, we know it's in Italian or French or German and we don't care because we know it's great. Um, and we're going to have subtitles and that always helps. <laughs> right. And opera often like taps into universal themes. Yeah. Nothing would survive if it didn't have. Right. Movie. If it didn't. Yeah. Right. Love. Hmm, never heard of that concept before. That's kind of what Parasite did and it like tapped into themes and concepts that are applicable to everyone. But it also added another layer of if you understand the culture and you understand the context of everything, it just made it so much richer. Yeah, yeah, it enriches the experience. So what is your solution as the arbiter of the future of opera to like kind of help bridge that gap, you think? What do you think we need to do to help every, help provide everyone the knowledge or the wherewithal to have that context so they can really 
appreciate the richness of opera can offer? I think it starts with your mom showing someone next to her on the bus. This is opera. I love it. That's such a cool story. (laughs) They're still friends to this day. You have made it as an Asian child. (laughs) You have like ascended the peak of Asian childhood and I will never forgive you for this. But it starts with finding what you genuinely, genuinely love about it. And I think that's true for artists and for directors as well. Like if you have to justify this to a potential audience member, you also have to be able to justify it to yourself. Um, and that's why I feel so passionately about getting people that don't look traditionally like classical singers into this medium, because there's so much richness that we have to tell as, as a people. Um, there's so much community to be had. I think that's another thing. You have to go into it expecting to be moved. I think if you go into it pessimistically of like, I don't want to enjoy this, of course you're not going to. You can do that with anything. You can do that with a film. You can do that with a concert. Man, I really hate this, I don't know, opening act or whatever. You're not going to enjoy it. Um, And so I feel like culturally speaking, um, I think that there's at least a subconscious layer of like, as as a populace, we want to be moved. We want to be uh, struck artistically to the core. And I think a lot of the disconnect that people are sensing is from people who don't want that in their lives. Or at least, you know, if you can rationalize to yourself, like, I don't like art, <laughs> like that's on, you know, that's in a way that's on you. <laughs> um, but yeah, just being open to that concept of experiencing something that you've never experienced before. Um, And I feel so passionately about like new productions of things, new ways of looking at old stories, because we do that all the time. How many times have we seen Boy Meets Girl fall in love? You know, how many times have we seen uh, rivalries, two people come together or or fights between higher powers and lower powers? Um, There are so many ways of telling that, that if you let yourself be open to that experience and have that opportunity to move you, I feel like it really can. And if not, watch another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that sort of touches on, I think this is related to like what we were saying about Parasite earlier too, of, of like who is driving the conversation too and, and how much energy do we give to the very vocal minority for lack of a better term, right? Like the people who dislike something simply because it is. And I think that that is a conversation worth having really in any art form about, but especially ones that are funded by um, wealthy individuals, right? And who tend to pander to those individuals. There's this, there's always this conversation. I see it in academia all the time of like, well, we need money, so we need to make sure that the people that are going to give us money are happy, but we also need to drive uh, engagement and we need to get more people in here. And I've always thought that, you know, those two things, while there's a little bit of overlap, like you can't ever have both, right? You have to, if you're pandering to the people who have money just because they have money and they'll keep the thing afloat, you'll make them happy, but you're never going to do the things that will get people into the seats because you're going to be doing the same shows about the European boy and the European girl falling in love. And yeah. So 
I'm hoping, especially in talking to you and talking to Sean and talking to um, other people that I am on this podcast and, and finding that so many people in our greater generation are tuned into that or seem to be and and are finding that, you know, maybe the donor class isn't doing so well by us. And so there's benefit to sort of pushing on those boundaries. And maybe the three dudes on Twitter that are really pissed that there's an Asian woman in Star Wars, maybe they don't matter, you know? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the conversations that people have are catering to those negative people in the room of, oh man, these people were the most vocal about their disillusionment with this product. Therefore, we must like take that into account when we budget for next season or whatever. Um, and I've sort of been wrestling with this of like, what does compromise look like as an artist? What does that look like as a company? Am I compromising in a direction that is moving forward or am I compromising in a direction that's moving back? I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking right now about a variety of things. Um, but if you think to yourself, here's our standard, here's what we've traditionally done as an industry or as a company or as an artist, here's what I've traditionally done. Do I want to regress from this or do I want to go somewhere new? And I think when people stand on that, that balancing point, it's too easy to fall back, to fall backwards into what's been traditionally done. And it just takes a little bit of compromising forward at a time to push that narrative of like what we are possible of doing as artists or as people. And I think that that's possibly a radical idea for a lot of people. Uh, but I say, why not? I am here in the year 2020. Why shouldn't I be trying to move forward as opposed to stepping behind? And I know that you actually practice what you preach because I see what what kind of repertoire you're trying to learn and trying to kind of put out there for everyone to listen to. And I also know that you, you know, take forays into composition. So when you take that kind of mission statement that you have, um, how does that kind of come into play when you write music or you um, sing the lesser known bits that are newer? Yeah, the really exciting thing about doing new music, new art, is the lack of tradition. The lack of, it should sound this way, this should be phrased this way, this should have this shape. Um, and you're sort of given free reign to do whatever you want. Uh, the majority of my compositions have all been humorous to me. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I don't see myself as like a composer. Like, they're named after, um, my most recent composition was called Hot Dr. Pepper. Uh, and I, I just had such a ball writing it because it's this monologue about this recipe for hot Dr. Pepper. I loved it. I loved working on it. Um, and that's the joy I feel of making art is you can do whatever you want. You can, it can be as it was for me, like a, a medium for my own comedic self to come out um, in the writing um, and doing these new works as a singer it's really exciting because usually these new works were composed maybe within your lifetime <laughs> and they might have that context of like being in a 21st century world as well as like the multitude of ways of telling stories. You don't have just 
narrative or dramatic ways of telling, but you can tell surrealist stories. You can tell uh, abstract stories. Um, I think that's really fascinating for me to dive into as a person to be like, what m meaning can I glean out of this new work? You want to talk about that really cool piece you did with flute um, when you were still yes. sexy? Because that is a great example of like surrealism. Yeah. So that piece is Kate Soper's Only the Words mean them or only the words themselves mean what they say um I did the first moon of that with Dr. Kathy Apple who's a fantastic flautist uh I was very happy to have found her because I had this piece on my bucket list for a long time and she took modern like literature like poems that people and essays that people wrote and she made this really fantastic Kate Soper the composer made this really fantastic uh narrative within these essays, these poems that can convey all of the nuances of a person going through this thought process. When you have a poem in front of you or, or a Shakespeare monologue or any amount of rhetoric, there are, so, there are a million ways to interpret it. And this composition is just one. But within that way of interpreting it, there are so many different ways you can express um, you can express yourself. So that's the, the joy, I think, of, of doing classical music is you can take something that's been previously written out for you and this is the way that uh, we've captured this image onto this page of a particular emotional state. And you as the artist have the opportunity to explore, to go wild, which is a really lovely way to spend my day. And I feel like classical music kind of lends itself maybe to to that more than some other genres because so much of it has been around for so long and we have these very specific ideas of what classical music sounds like and what it does. And so I feel like it is very ripe, even more so than some other genres to interpretation because it has already been interpreted so many times, right? And, right. and, it, and a lot of it doesn't begin with a single exemplar recording it, it sort of feels to me as an outsider is this genre that exists in kind of perpetual flux yeah I think that's one of the great contradictions of classical music and of opera is this wrestling between uh tradition and what's traditionally been done and art <laughs> being artistic being an artist it's this really fascinating fluctuation between we've done it this way before, therefore we cannot do, the, do it this way. And that trend has uh, wildly fluctuated from decade to decade, like things that were like, yes, you can definitely ornament Mozart versus you definitely cannot ornament Mozart. Performance practice, right, right, right. Exactly. You definitely can ornament Baroque music or you definitely cannot ornament Baroque music. Um, which again, at the end of the day, the people making this are people with opinions. None of this is uh, written in stone. In fact, music isn't written in stone. It's performed live. <laughs> yeah, so that's a really fascinating grappling that this community has had to do since basically the recorded age of, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, um, having these like, you know, Corelli did it this way, or Scotto did it this way, therefore we must do it this way. Uh, and it sort of loses the, the spontaneity um, of making music, of being an artist. 
And I think what's really lovely about popular music is that you have that freedom to be an artist. There's such a plethora of possibilities that you can have. And there's no like, well, I've branded myself as a rock musician, therefore I can only play these particular songs and these particular styles. Like no one says that, that's ridiculous. And I think that the evolution of the artist becomes really hindered when you are constantly thinking backwards, stepping backwards instead of moving forwards. I think that there's a, a huge aspect of opera that relies on that tradition, which I think is great. There are fantastic ideas embedded in in the recordings that we have or in the sheet music that we have. Um, and I also think that there are fantastic ideas that artists can come up with themselves. I'd love to see more of that. Maybe give us one or two of your current day opera role models for anything you've touched on. Or are you just like, they're my favorite currently alive singer ever? Mm. It's difficult to have favorites because I have a particular uh, thought process about idolizing people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there are really fantastic musicians, uh, musicians of color, Black, Indigenous musicians that are uh, educating me through their social media pages that I had no idea existed before and were having these thoughts before. Um, that's something that I would encourage anyone who's, who is seeking to become a more uh, enlightened artist, not enlightened, but like a more broad artist of following people and having your feeds be uh, populated by thoughts that you didn't have before. I meet so few people, especially now in quarantine, uh, who are of a particular background and doing classical music. And so that's been my way of staying, of staying connected. But if I, yeah, I, I guess anyone who is willing to share that struggle of being an artist and put it online, for me, a stranger, to read and to see, I think is, that's something that should be really admired. Um, I also appreciate that they're doing this for free out of the goodness of their own hearts. Uh, they could give, you know, career coachings or whatever for $60 an hour, $60 plus an hour. Um, and I'm really, I think that sadly that that's something that's admirable, that you can give advice and can give um, your story uh, and to do it for free. Obviously, like, you know, compensate your artists for the work that they do. Um, but if you just have some advice to tell, I don't see why that should be monetized. Knowledge should not be capital at its root sort of tying back in to this previous point or is there anything that you're looking at um, outside of opera or classical music that is particularly inspiring you right now yeah I've been watching a lot of dance choreography film um, photography visual art music videos are incredibly like poignant storytelling modes um, I think it's too easy in this insulated industry to be like, okay, I'm learning X role. Therefore I must watch all of the productions of this opera. And that's my research. And I think what's really great about this time and not like, you know, being able to perform as unfortunate as that is, it does free up time to diversify your breadth of what's possible. And opera, while it is, uh, a musical and an auditory medium it is also a visual medium and you know what are you saying in the way that a picture looks or the way that the staging looks or your movement looks 
that isn't necessarily in the music or in your voice. I think it all contributes. Um, which Sean was talking about a little bit before about my personal philosophy of being on stage is every aspect of what I'm doing is an attempt to convey a particular meaning. I think music videos in general are really an underappreciated genre. Um, yeah, by far. My first artistic foray when I was in like fifth grade or whatever was watching various people's music videos. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did the same thing and it really got me um, sold on a career in music that didn't end up being where I ended up going, but you know, it's a neat way to approach it. Thanks for talking to us today. It's it's been really good to have you on. Yeah. Is there anything right now that you would like to plug or any place that online that people can find you? Yes. Um I have a Facebook page, Angelium Soprano. I have been posting things on it that were related to performance until those performances ended. Uh but I do post there if I do have interesting projects coming up. Um, I have some exciting things coming up this year that I'm not sure I can tell you about, um, but we'll see. <laughs> and I really appreciate you guys facilitating this conversation because I think having people just talk about their industry and about their art really lowers that barrier of accessibility. And I feel like, you know, it's my mom on the bus playing a video for a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way to share things that are not you have to pay $75 to sit in the way back row to watch something you might not even enjoy. So I appreciate you guys doing this and facilitating this conversation. Thank you. Um, it was great talking to you. Yes. Yeah. Nice to talk to you guys. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?